Well, the author of this, uh, this letter to the Hebrews is writing to Jews, and the case that I would like to, to make is that he's writing to those Jews who would have been converted, maybe at the day of Pentecost, or certainly in the very early days of the Christian movement. And so they would have probably been, it, it seems, converted for about 20 years, maybe 25 years by the time they get this letter. And they're starting to slip. They're starting to go back to the Lord of Moses and go back to the temple uh, system. And he's therefore, the writer is therefore trying to encourage them to focus upon Jesus and to focus upon the uniqueness of that great salvation that is in him. And from that point of view, I guess we all need that. No matter how long we've been converted, baptized ourselves, there is inevitably the loneliness of the long-distance runner that sets in at some point in our lives, and that letting of things slip. And this is why we have the breaking of bread, to, to focus us again, that's what it should do, upon the Lord Jesus and upon his blood and his sacrifice, his cross. And again, elsewhere, I've made the comment that there's a lot of language within Hebrews which would imply that this is almost a transcript of uh, a sermon, an exhortation at the breaking of bread because there's a lot of references to the body and blood of Jesus uh, and the whole style of it is very much of somebody, somebody speaking uh, rather than writing and there's a short uh, sort of uh, appendix at the end where he sort of uh, ties it all together so when he says you see uh, the letter that I have written unto you I don't really take that as meaning that it's a letter uh, as we might be accustomed to say, Paul's letters. But I would see this really as specifically uh, an exhortation for the breaking of bread. And he uses very often logical terms such as therefore, or here in chapter 3 verse 1, wherefore, holy brethren, consider Jesus. Because of what he did, that he paid dearly for you in his life and in his death upon the cross, Therefore, as he says so often, hold on, hold fast. These are very much the uh, kind of words that we get here, um, uh, like in verse six of chapter chapter six uh, of chapter three. Uh, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. Uh, chapter four, uh, verse fourteen. Let us hold fast our profession. Uh, and chapter ten, also twenty-one and, and twenty-three. The idea of holding on because he died for me. And it is that holding on which seems so difficult for so many. And he does try to uh, pique our sense of intensity, I think, by talking about the very real possibility of condemnation. And he says, verse 1 of chapter 4, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. In other words, we know that Israel and Egypt were like us in the world. 1 Corinthians 10 makes it clear that their passage through the Red Sea was like our baptism, and their wilderness journey towards the kingdom is like our path in life, eating the manna of uh, the Lord Jesus every day uh, as we get closer to the kingdom. But are we really going to be so confident of ourselves as a community that we would say that it's going to be different for spiritual Israel 
than what it was for natural Israel. Are we really going to say that, okay, the majority of them who passed through the Red Sea uh, fell in the wilderness and they did not enter into his rest, but actually for the new Israel it will be so much, so much a higher percentage? Well, you know, Paul touches on this in, in Romans, doesn't he, where he talks about how the, the unbelieving branches have been cut off and the Gentiles have been grafted in, and he says, be not high-minded, don't be overconfident, but fear. And there, it's a difficult balance, I suppose, but uh, we, on a personal level, should be able to say that if the Lord Jesus comes back today, by his grace, although I should not be, by his grace, I will be accepted into his kingdom. And yet, on a sort of communal, collective level, I think he is saying, both here and in, uh, in Romans, that we should not assume that the Christian community as a community is going to uh, fare better, as it were. And it, Paul says uh, elsewhere, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So there is nothing wrong with realistically accepting that there is such a thing as condemnation and there is such a, a thing as people being baptized and walking or starting the journey and then falling, and lots of them. Let's just bear that in mind. I, I don't think we can ever say, bah, bah, no, 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 boo-hoo, that's, that's uh, irrelevant. The, the, the argument here that we've just read in Hebrews 4 uh, and what you've got there in Romans 11 is, is too strong, I think, for us to, to ever reason like that. And notice, incidentally, in chapter 3, verse 17, with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? There was a grief of God Almighty over those who fell in the wilderness. And it was a pretty awful situation. He talks about their carcasses uh, falling in the wilderness, as if one by one they, they dropped. And... I think uh, it's worth reminding ourselves of the RV margin, which, uh, which talks there of their limbs which fell off in the wilderness. And then you bring in Psalm 91, where God, as I see it in that psalm, is comforting Joshua that although there is the peril that stalks at night, and there is disease, and there is the, the bolt of the angel killing people, killing people all around Joshua, Yet he's not to fear. He will be okay. That would imply that that generation that died in the wilderness died pretty well one by one. And it must have been a fearful thing for someone of Joshua's age, of his generation, to go through that experience. And he needed that comfort of Psalm 91, where he's being you know, comforted that although people are dying all around you, his own relatives, people he knew in the, in the camp of Israel, yet he would be preserved. And so that sense that there is a future that we might miss, I really think we have to take that seriously because it, it does give a bit of peak and intensity to what is in front of us, that in the end there will only be one of two possible exits in our destiny, to eternal life or to eternal death. And yet again, you know, he's, he's so encouraging, looking at chapter 4 there, Verse 3, we which have believed do enter into rest. 
in the sense that we cease from trusting in our own works as God did on the, on the Sabbath. And yet, verse 11, let us labor therefore to, inter, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after that same pattern of unbelief. So are we in the rest or are we not? Well, in one sense we are, in another sense we are still laboring to enter into that rest. So by status we have been saved. God, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So then, were they saved if you interviewed them? Have you been saved? Sure, I've been saved. Out of Egypt. But it was that endurance to the end which was so hard for them, and which is so difficult, it seems, for so, so many of us. And you can only keep on keeping on by being regularly inspired. And what is the inspiration? I think it's significant that Hebrews does not keep on dangling the carrot of eternal life in front of us, the carrot of the kingdom, but instead, and I'm not saying it's not a carrot and that it's not there, but instead he's reasoning all the time that because Jesus died for you and paid so dearly for you, therefore that is the motivation. In other, in other words, the cross is in that sense behind us historically and it is that which motivates it is that which inspires in this uh, business of keeping on keeping on and holding on in chapter 4 verse 12 he says in the RV that Jesus is right now quick to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts uh, I, I take the word of God there, the Logos, to be a, a title of Jesus. Remember, he has that title in uh, Revelation 19. So he right now is very quick to discern the thoughts and, in, and intents of our hearts. And uh, in Isaiah 11 verse 3, you have those same sort of ideas in prophecy of how Jesus would be in his mortal life. He was then of quick understanding. And he is of quick discernment or understanding of our thoughts right now. And we know from the Gospel records how there were times when Jesus very quickly perceived what other people were thinking. And uh, it may not have been by a, a sort of a bolt of Holy Spirit inspiration, uh, but more, I suggest, an outcome of his amazing sensitivity to the human person which he had. So my point is that the Jesus who was in his mortal life quick to discern thoughts and intents of hearts is the same today. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the comfort of that is that the Jesus who loved little children, the Jesus who died to save, to save us, is the very one who is going to meet us at the Day of Judgment. Notice also in that uh, connection, chapter 4, verse 14, he had uh, all of our nature and, and uh, temptations, and he has now passed through the heavens, or passed into the heavens. The, the idea is that he's passed up through into the heavens. And that could uh, suggest that the Jesus that was here on earth is the very one who is there in heaven. It's this picture of this same Jesus. And again, that's the significance of the angel's words, that this same Jesus, 
who you have seen go into heaven, who just now you were talking to, and he may have uh, sneezed or scratched himself or whatever, that same Jesus who you just saw, who you ate with, is going to come again. He will be the same tomorrow when you meet him, at the day of judgment, uh, as he as he was right now. And that's why several New Testament passages, like 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, uh, call the Lord Jesus, even in his state of exaltation, a man, the man, Christ Jesus. Not in that sense that he has human nature, but in the sense that he really um, can feel all human emotion, because, of course, he was human, and he is not uh, disconnected, he has not cut that off. So then, this is that Jesus with whom we have to do. Know uh, what he says there in verse 15, that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It doesn't say a high priest who could not have been touched, but rather which cannot, who cannot, present tense, be touched. It's as if he is now touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and yet he had and has divine nature. That opens quite a window, an interesting window, into what eternity will be like. We will have divine nature, sure, we will not be able to die. Uh, but we also, in some sense, will be able to be touched with the feeling of human infirmity. And, interestingly, uh, the only other time that that Greek word translated touched with the feeling of, which you've got there in verse 15, the only other time it occurs in the whole New Testament is also in Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 34, Hebrews 10:34, where it says that uh, the Hebrew Christians had compassion of me. That's the, uh, the writer of the letter. They had compassion of me. They were touched with my feelings. They uh, empathized with me, because they had also suffered uh, abuse and persecution. And when the writer of the letter says that, you know, I had that, he says, you had compassion of me. You, had, you were touched with a feeling of what I was feeling. This is amazing, then, that the Lord Jesus right now is touched with our feelings. You feel desperation, depression, joy, uh, euphoria, comfort, uh, disappointment. He has those feelings. Because he is our representative, and he is one with us. And this is the huge significance of baptism into him, that we therefore and thereby united with him, and yet it's a two-way thing. He also is united with us. So he says in verse 15 there um, that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Now, this is very much the language of judgment, coming before the throne of grace in order to obtain mercy. And he says we should have boldness as we pray to God, knowing that we have this great high priest. And it's the same word there in 1 John 2 verse 28, where we're told that we, we can be bold or confident um, 
at the Day of Judgment. Now, that, that's a fairly mind-blowing idea, that we could have any boldness or confidence, and it can only be a confidence in His grace. Uh, he, he talks, uh, 1 John 2:28. When He shall appear, we may have confidence or boldness, and not be ashamed from before Him at His coming. Now, I see, therefore, that the experience of prayer, this coming before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace, is a foretaste of the day of judgment. And that, I, I think, opens up this seriousness of prayer. It's not something you rattle off. Um, maybe at times you do have to. The situation gives you no option but to, as it were, rattle off a, a, a momentary prayer. But that shouldn't suffice to make us think, ah, yeah, well, I do pray. Prayer is really also about seriously coming uh, before him, having set a time to do this, uh, not drifting off to sleep. Uh, and in, the, in that connection with him that we have then, we are having a foretaste of the Day of Judgment. And we can be bold. It's amazing, but we can be, because we have Jesus on our side as our mediator. And he talks in chapter 5, verse 7, about how Jesus in the day, days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. And yet Romans 8, verse 26, says that Jesus makes intercession for us now with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I would put those two passages together. It's as if he's saying that the or that the connection is saying that, in the same way as Jesus interceded for us on the cross, with strong crying and tears for salvation from death, and that salvation from death that he sought was not simply his own gut fear of death that he wanted to get out of, but the salvation from death that he sought, I suggest, was. Uh, supremely ours he wanted salvation for us from our deaths which we shall have to die and so the intensity of mediation which there was in his time of dying is the same today as he mediates for us in heaven now that should lift prayer and the experience of it right up onto an altogether different level and it's true especially I think of our breaking of bread service now where we think of him there and because we may only seriously focus upon him there occasionally be it once a week I hope more often than that but uh, because it's not all the time we can therefore tend to assume that he also uh, doesn't have that intensity for us all the time but he does he really does right now and every day